Hey, folks, just wanted to jump in with a quick note from our sponsors this week, including A24 presenting Ex Machina, the provocative new sci-fi thriller that has audiences and critics seduced. Manola Dargis of the New York Times calls it a critic's pick, a futuristic shocker about men, the machines they make, and the women they dream up. And Peter Travers of Rolling Stone declares you've never seen anything like it. Ex Machina is now playing everywhere, presented by A24. They do great stuff there. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Tasha Robinson. And here's the Hammer of Thor. You first, Josh. Yeah, whosoever, be he worthy, you shall have the power. Whatever, man. It's a trick. Oh, it is much more than that, my friend. <laughs> if I lift it, do I get to rule Asgard? Yes, of course. I will be fair but firmly cruel. How would we score the Hammer of Thor anyway? Uh, I didn't score it. John Williams scored it. <laughs> gotcha. Robert Downey Jr.'s Tony Stark with Chris Hemsworth's Thor in that clip from Avengers Age of Ultron. This week on the show, the Dissolve's Tasha Black Widow Robinson joins me for a review of the Avengers sequel, plus our 2015 summer movie preview. That and lots more. Uh, 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 how'd you even get this in the studio? <laughs> Ahead on film spotting. Film Spotting is brought to you by Movie, a curated online cinema that brings its members a hand-picked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films. Movies can take over, get scary with an alum from the festival's arguably more daring Un Certain Regards sidebar. The film is Pulse, which comes from Master J horror stylist Kiyoshi Kurosawa. Movie describes it as a prophetic, intensely eerie cult classic that's still superior to its many imitators, a haunting for the Y2K generation, in HD. Movies Can Takeover also wants to wish a happy 100th birthday to Orson Welles. Welles won the festival's top prize in 1952 for Othello, which movie calls a dark, rapturously cinematic masterwork, Welles' first in exile, and one of the greatest takes on Shakespeare ever filmed. Movies pleased to present this hard-to-find classic in an HD restoration. Everyday Movies curators introduce a new title, and you have 30 days to watch it. That means there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy, all for only $4.99 a month. Plus, when you use their mobile apps, you can download films to watch offline. Listeners of Film Spotting can try Mubi free for a month. Just go to Mubi.com slash Filmspotting to redeem now. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash Filmspotting. You're listening to Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. Adam's off this week, so joining me is Tasha Robinson from The Dissolve. Tasha, I was thinking if there was an Avengers of movie critics, would you say that you guys at The Dissolve are sort of the brilliant, quick-witted Tony Stark to us here at Film Spotting being the Ernest Do-Gooder Steve Rogers? Does that make a little sense to you? Well, we do get all the ladies, but I personally <laughs> think of you guys as the brilliant yet very serious Bruce Banner, and I'm hoping if I bait you enough about Avengers, you're going to go all Hulk on this studio. It's possible. It's happened, but maybe Adam only knows how to push those buttons. We'll see. Well, you can get out your gold-plated Apple Watches and sync your calendars to our summer movie preview. Tasha and I share our highly subjective lists of the top five films not to miss between Superhero Spring and Superhero Fall. That's later in the show. But first, Mr. Ultron, the floor is yours. 
I was designed to save the world. People who look to the sky and see hope. I'll take that from them first. There's only one path to peace. Their extinction. We've had enough Marvel movies now, Tasha, that people have begun to talk about them almost in auteurist terms, noting the recurring themes, the formal choices, the structural elements that suggest a common authorial voice. So in this case, as in the Hollywood studio system era, the studio takes the place of the writer-director. Watching Avengers Age of Ultron, it struck me that there's definitely a signature Marvel action move. I'm calling it the punchplosion when a superhero unleashes a flying fist and the impact creates a massively reverberating thud. I've been seeing that a lot lately. In fact, Age of Ultron gives us a double punchplosion when Iron Man and Hulk brawl, their two fists meet in an earthquake-like collision. It's pretty cool. I'm not immune to such comics-inspired gestures, and I guess you could say that by incorporating such a touch, Joss Whedon, who's returning after helming the first Avengers movie, has upped his game. But I also wonder if simply upping the ante in such ways should be enough. Should bigger punchplosions, as well as more characters, which we get in Age of Ultron, more destroyed cities, there are so many here I lost count, and promises of more sequels, be the main goal of a superhero installment? Or should we expect something that's not necessarily bigger, but different? Well, I mean, I think we get all of those things here in Age of Ultron, but I don't think that those things are the primary goal. I Perhaps they're the primary goal for Marvel Studios. I feel like for Joss Whedon in particular, the primary goal is to serve all of these characters. And it becomes a very, very difficult goal when there are so many characters going on. But I think he actually manages it pretty admirably. If you if you look at, at individual characters, even as small as, uh, as Falcon or as Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch here, there's a definite attempt to give each one of them at least one scene where they can do something cool, where they can be themselves, where they can service the fans and service the characters. And it seems to me one of Joss Whedon's goals has always been the interpolation of of punchy banter and, and late moments and quotable lines with these really dark emotional beats. And I, I see him all over this film in a in auteurist sort of way, which is always interesting with these Marvel movies. You have a lot of different directors brought in, some of them very distinctive voices, and they're all producing something that looks very, very similar. It's not just the punch explosions. It's the way the camera moves. It's the way the CGI is integrated. It's the way the stories are told with the same sort of beats, always building to some sort of gigantic planet-threatening ending. And at the same time, they're trying to put their own distinctive mark on the film. I think that is, in fact, just as difficult as trying to serve as all these characters at once. But I think he does a reasonable job of it here. He does maybe a reasonable job is fair. And it's a tough job. I'll admit that from the start. Probably more filmmakers than not would fail completely with this challenge of juggling all of these characters, giving them those moments, not only of action, it's it's not only to show their powers, which something like some of the X-Men movies, I feel, fall towards. Okay, we're going to get the power shot here so that you remember what they do, and then we'll move on and give you another power shot. I think Whedon accomplishes more than that because he is interested in character. He's interested in the humor, and uh, it's 
interesting to note that you're right, even though these movies have a lot of the similar look and feel, that's not always a bad thing because service to character and humor is a common thread throughout them, no matter the director. And I think those are good qualities in a superhero movie. So it's good to see those. I just think this time with Age of Ultron, the deck is just stacked too high against him. They introduce with already two of the characters you mentioned are new superheroes we need to keep track of, we need to get the backstory to. We essentially, all these other figures on the Avengers, we know well from a movie, if not multiple movies. So we have that going in. These are two new characters who we need to learn a lot about. And the movie services that. It gives us that. Um, but it's on top of all these other characters who still need to be serviced or they're going to get lost in the fray. And I felt like people did get lost in the fray. There's a third figure that comes in the final act, this AI figure, I'll just say, to kind of pose against the main villain, which is also an AI figure, Ultron. I don't want to give any more away than that, but this is another figure that we have to keep track of. And in that climax, when they were all swirling about, it was so extended that I forgot there were certain people there at some point. We would get to a scene where we'd return to someone who hadn't we hadn't seen in a couple minutes, and I would think, oh, that's right, they're here too. And one of the figures that this happened to for me, which was really disappointing, was Ultron, because I think he's a really good villain in this film, and he gets pushed aside in the climax almost because there is so much service to all of these characters. So maybe it's just a logistical thing for me, and it, it's been pushed too far in Age of Ultron, but that was one of the things I was left feeling. Is it, It's a little bit tired to to say, oh, I'm exhausted by these comic book movies. I'm exhausted by the explosions. I'm exhausted by all the characters. So I have other complaints about Age of Ultron beyond that, but I think that is a legitimate concern, is that when we're juggling so many characters that we can't fully service them all within the narrative, then another direction is going to have to be taken uh, by the filmmakers. And maybe they're going to have to figure out a different way of, if not scaling it down, scaling it differently. And maybe that's a more fundamental problem I had with the film, is there, there was nothing really new or inventive or risk-taking in terms of the trajectory of the narrative or where this went. It felt very familiar to me. And if anything, I would have thought that the second Avengers installment might be the place where Marvel or someone like Whedon would say, okay, we've built an empire here. Let's go somewhere really interesting with it. And instead, they pretty much tread a lot of water. Well, I think the We've Built an Empire, Let's Go Someplace Interesting film was Guardians of the Galaxy. And that that was a, a film that tried to go someplace new and do something new. I also think that uh, the first Avengers was a let's try a new approach and go someplace new and do something new. I think that these films that, that use ensemble and that ultimately aren't about the individual characters, they're about a team and how it functions, that is the new direction. And I find it a, a fantastic new direction. I mean, nobody has attempted... Uh, in film, what the Marvel Cinematic Universe has been doing in terms of taking all of these individual films one by one to build these characters on their own terms. We don't necessarily need Thor serviced, as you keep saying, properly in Avengers. He's got his own two movies for that. Iron Man has three movies. Captain America has his film and another one coming up. All of these movies are about 
establishing what their characters are, what their conflicts are, what the issues surrounding them are. This movie is about how they operate together. And that, for me, is is more than enough. If anything, I think the film may try just a little too hard to try to, to fit all of them in. I really like the, the little moments that they give Falcon and Rhodey and uh, Jarvis, all of these minor characters that are established. I like it better than the moment that they kind of take to say, oh, where's your girlfriend? Here's the excuse for her not being <laughs> the movie. a little awkward. <laughs> Where Pepper and Jane are both, I don't know, having cocktails somewhere and yeah. not being here. Of course, being Whedon, it, he makes it into a funny little moment where Thor has his little, but Jane's better, which I thought was a very cute thing. And one of just a, a thousand little touches in this movie where Whedon sticks in a tiny bit of, of, of humor at the end of a scene, just sort of as a grace note to let you know he's on his way out. But for me, you know, what you're saying is that you're exhausted, that there's just there's so much going on. Maybe I'm just inexhaustible, but I I found this movie so exhilarating, and it was because we didn't need to be taking so much time with people's individual, complicated, like, angsty issues. Uh, For me, one of the places that the film fell down a bit was the whole business with the Scarlet Witch throwing everybody into their individual nightmares, because I don't think that those individual threads were really completed. And I think what it comes down to is that the original movie was three hours long. And I think where you can most clearly see the cuts to get it to a theatrical length are specifically around Steve Rogers' uh, story in the, the nightmare and Thor's story in the nightmare, because neither one of those are really completed thoughts. And I really wonder, first of all, if we're going to see more of those stories and a more completed version of them when the DVD comes out with 40 minutes of extras on it and whether you're looking forward to any of that or you're already so tired of it you don't care. No, and, and I'm not so tired that I'm willing to write off the the franchise or Marvel films at all. It's more a matter of definitely feeling what you're talking about with that Scarlet Witch thread and thinking here's something pretty unique and interesting how they are each having these visions of horrible things and how is it going to affect them and it's essentially dropped. I mean, it's completely dropped. There's no repercussions of that for the rest of the film. It does kind of make the Avengers take a time out and recuperate at Hawkeye's secret home. I like that touch. We learned a little bit about him, that he's got a farmhouse off on the side. Mm -hmm. But after that, it really didn't matter that she had these powers and how it incorporated into the climax or really the battle against Ultron. And there are just too many moving pieces here. And and I think that's something that, you know, maybe it will get fleshed out in a DVD extra, but then it's not doing anything for the film proper. And so maybe they do need to take a step back and say, what can we legitimately handle in a two, two and a half hour film? As far as, you know, feeling exhilarated about it, I think I would have been able to get on board because I am enough of a superhero geek, an action movie geek, that if I get some great action scenes, that'll carry me through a lot. And I just don't know that Whedon has that level of sensibility. The one trick he's pulled out in both Avengers films that I liked quite a bit is the faux single take, which gets exactly at what you're talking about, the teamwork, where it seems as if the camera is not cutting at all, but we're swinging. And the movie opens this way. We're swinging from one Avenger to the next in the midst of battle. And ideally, what we're seeing is how they are assisting each other or playing off each other in this somewhat improvised, but also strategic battle attack. That's really exhilarating. That moment is pretty exciting. But at the start of the film is really the only opportunity we get it. He tries to return to it in that climax when they're all surrounding 
this MacGuffin, essentially, in the church and protecting it from Ultron and his robots. And we do get an element of that single take, again, swirling around, and we see how they each have their individual part to play. But then that, too, gets cut up in insert shots and quick edits, and we start to lose a little bit of that clarity that a really good action scene requires. So I don't know that these work on the level of a superior action movie to carry me, to give me that sort of exhilaration, I guess, that you found. Hmm. Um, I mean, obviously, I, I found the level of exhilaration that I found, so it did work for me. I do think, I think that you're underselling the degree to which the, the Scarlet Witch Visions affect the rest of the story. I mean, I think that for Tony Stark, they play directly into the creation of Ultron and into what went wrong there. For uh, Bruce Banner, it affects uh, heavily affects his arc for the rest of the film. I think it might have been a stronger story if we had either seen the other people who, who encountered these visions. Uh, Natasha Romanoff's, again, it, it seemed like that was a very deep and painful thing, and, and it just sort of slides off of her. So the three that we don't really get back to, I would have liked to have seen a little more of how they fought that off, what it meant to them, or have some sort of sense of if this is going to be addressed in the future. The Marvel movies have done an awful lot of laying minds for future stories. That's true. They're really good at that. So if these are all going to be things that are developed later or come up in some way, I would have liked to have seen a little more of a hint of that. But for me, the excitement of all of these characters at this point in this story And the excitement for me of going into this movie, having seen the previous adventures, was people with superpowers cease being interesting. Uh, You know, the Hulk has one move. He smashes things. Uh, Steve Rogers has a a shield that he can bash things with and acrobatics and he can take a punch really hard and so forth and so on. But once you've seen them do sort of the same things over and over in their own films, seeing them get together and synergize their powers off of each other, that was where the exhilaration came from. Yeah, I could see that. You're listening to Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson sitting in for Adam Kempinar this week is Tasha Robinson from The Dissolve, and we are talking about Avengers Age of Ultron. One thing I do want to give some time to Tasha because it was my favorite part about the movie, uh, something that I really appreciated, and also what I appreciate about the first Avengers film was the villain. I thought Tom Hiddleston was great in that film as Loki, this sort of snide um, alien from another planet who's just going to casually take over Earth because we're such weaklings. We have a little bit of a similar attitude here in Ultron, and I liked that too. He's this AI program, as you said, um, invented pretty much by Tony Stark out of this vision he has. You're right. That's maybe the most arresting vision is the one where he sees the other Avengers lane having fallen in battle. That does work well. And so he invents this AI program to protect them. Well, that's, you know, AI programs tend to have a mind of their own. We've learned now. And that's what happens here. But it's not in this sort of all-powerful way. I love how we are introduced to Ultron when he's weak because the first body he finds to take shape in is one of Stark's damaged robots. And he sort of comes hobbling this the same party that we were talking about. The party scene, which I think is one of the strengths of the movie, ends with Ultron hobbling in the midst of the Avengers, looking like he could... He looks like a deranged marionette, essentially. Not very threatening, But what he's saying so casually, beautiful voice work by James Spader here, is that they're really inessential for Earth. He's basically assessed their value to people and to mankind and says, you know what? 
um, you're killers. Doesn't he say something like that? Mm-hmm. You guys are all killers. You're and all killers. He's determined that they may be fighting for justice and peace, but based on what he's seen by reviewing news reports, looking through all their files in about three seconds, I love the aside, oh, give me a second. And then he has everything he needs to know. He's assessing that the world will be better off without them. I found that really provocative where there might be a little bit of self-critique in this film in terms of one of the complaints about these movies, and I've alluded to it, is that Marvel is running out of cities to destroy, (laughs) (laughs) you know, and I'm not going to get all high and mighty and say you cannot destroy a city in a film. That's disrespectful. Mm. But it is a matter of a lack of inventiveness, a lack of imagination. And so I thought maybe this is interesting. Ultron is going to note that you guys pretty much leave destruction in your wake. The world would be better off with me in charge. So I'm going to get rid of you. That is dropped, unfortunately, I felt in the film fairly quickly on, unless maybe you found some more self-critique there than I had. I think Iron Man, the original Iron Man had a lot of self-critique and that's why it's one of my favorite Marvel films wasn't quite pursued here that I found. No, I felt that one of the one of the flaws in the film for me was I never quite bought the transition between Ultron is created to protect the planet, Ultron decides that the best way to protect the planet is to kill the Avengers because they're killers, Ultron decides that the best way to protect the planet is to kill everybody. That was the third leap I didn't get either. Yeah, yeah. It, I, that felt very rushed. And the the funny thing is I could feel again, I want to see the the unused footage because I feel like there is an intelligent thread in there somewhere where his personality comes from Tony Stark, which is a decision that I love. And they do reference that here mm-hmm. and there. Yeah, that's true. And his the characterization comes out of it. The smartassness of the character. I, I think that, as you say, there's, there's some Tom Hiddleston and all that, that sort of sense that you can have a villain who has some humor to him. A lot of Marvel villains, not just in the movies, but in the comic books, are very humorless characters. DC's whole superhero business seems to be no jokes, no humor, how grim can we make it? And the the whole idea of the AI villain is often here is this inhuman thing that does not understand your your human humor. So having having a smart ass villain who's still threatening and inimical, I, I thought was just a daring and, and interesting touch. The problem is he seems to spend a lot of his time speechifying and pontificating without communicating much that that really hit home. That first speech where he says you're all killers. And you can see exactly what's going wrong in his head and where it's going to lead. That felt like a stroke of brilliance. And then when he shows up again, he's just kind of repeating the point. The transition to need to kill everybody, it just never felt properly underlined to me. Well, and I think it's also because where that is going to lead is an ultimate raising of the stakes where the whole planet is in peril. Mm. And if the whole planet is in peril, what happens? Everything in the entire scope of this as a movie production has to be raised in kind. And so where does that leave us? It leaves us again with an entire city, if not the world, but here where this final battle takes place, in danger as the battleground. And we've just seen that before. Now, there's the twist here where this city is floating in the air. I thought that was, you know, (laughs) there's a certain amount of poetry to that where you do see this floating and, you know, there are other. I I guess I would like it better if there were more implications to that. Um, Here and there, we fear for someone's car who might fall off that floating city. And there's a nice scene. I believe, again, some good teamwork. Is it Captain America and Thor Mm -hmm. where they save those cars? I like that. 
But otherwise, this is just another city being blown apart. And I, again, go back to this idea of this is a studio now and these are filmmakers who have their Ultron. They are all powerful. They can do whatever they want. And I realize all of the demographics that they're trying to serve here, the hardcore fans, the casual moviegoers, the kids in the audience who have these toys. So I'm not saying this is an easy thing to do. But when I do see someone who's a unique talent and a unique sensibility like Whedon and has already proven he can do it with the first Avengers, uh, I would like to see something where I would come away from that film and be like, wow. I never even expected, not only did I not expect to see that in the film, I couldn't have even imagined that because I think they have that possibility here. And instead, I came out of Avengers 2 feeling like that's pretty much what I thought I'd get. And it's not to say it's a bad film. It's not to say it's a complete failure. Um, But having enjoyed the first Avengers movie well enough I guess I was just wanted a little bit more. And it brings me to this question, you know, that the phrase was thrown out there of of fan service. And if I feel like there is a carefulness that is starting to creep in where what we do want to do is make sure that we give each of these characters their due in teamwork as audiences have come to love them and watch them. And let's just not mess this up. It had a let's not mess this up quality to Mm. it that I guess disappointed me a little bit. Well, I mean, when you've got billion dollar business, I think the incentive to not mess it up is is pretty high. Understandable. You're sick of seeing cities destroyed. I'm sick of the world is in danger because of a hoobajube. And we've all got to surround the hoobajube and fight off (laughs) millions of things that are trying to get to and or protect and or destroy the hoobajube. That started to feel very artificial to me. One of the things I liked most about uh, the Captain America, the Winter Soldier, was the world is not in danger. What is in danger in that case is millions of specific individual people who are being targeted by something inimical. In the Iron Man movies, it it often feels like what's at stake is Tony Stark himself. Mm -hmm. To some degree, his ego. To some degree, his his success and his personality. To some degree, whatever's being threatened, uh, you know, by the villain of the day. But there's much less of that sense of, eh, the world's going to blow up, which to me has started to feel like a very artificial stake. In this case, I do sort of wish that they'd, they'd decided to not blow it up to that proportion. But I do feel that Whedon was trying very hard to do something new and interesting here. And that was to put the focus on the, the individual people that they're trying to save. The world is in danger, but the real focus is on how many civilians can we get out of the way of the speeding train? How many civilians can we rescue from cars falling off the edge of the floating city? How many people can we load onto ships and load into the helicarrier and get it, get them out of here? And Kate Erblin uh, did a, a piece for us that published the same day we're recording this uh, over at The Dissolve that I found very interesting where she talks about this film in conjunction with Zack Snyder's Man of Steel and how the complaints about that movie were the devastation was just so thoughtless. Let's destroy a city and not even really think about it. Whereas here, it feels like every life matters. And I feel like that is a payoff for Ultron's accusation. You're all killers. The world would be better off without you. It feels like after that accusation, the individual Avengers spend the whole film trying to disprove him. And that provided attention to the movie that I found far more interesting than the world is going to blow up. Not just let's save individual people, but let's prove him wrong. Let's prove that we're better than that. Well, maybe one of the most 
human elements in this Avengers film is the growing relationship we see between Bruce Banner and Natasha, Black Widow. And I don't know, not being familiar enough with the comics myself, if this is something that was drawn from that or if it's something Whedon and the screenwriters are working into it of their own. But it seemed, it felt different for me from what has been going on in this series so far. How did it strike you in Age of Ultron? Well, I actually have no idea as far as the comics go. I am not very good about following Marvel superhero comics because there's so much of them. And, you know, if they had a romance, it could have been one thread in one of 500 comics over the last 50 years. So who knows? As far as this one went, though... I it it bothered me a little. I found it very hmm. tacked on and, and artificial in just like I liked the whole lullaby idea of her being the one that had built a trust relationship with the Hulk itself. Yeah, that's the first hint of it. I mm-hmm. thought that was a good scene, too, where she kind of touches his hand to, to calm him down enough to get back to being Banner. Mm-hmm. But the development of the the relationship just – it felt unimaginative to me. I, again, you talk about being a little bored with cities being smashed. I'm a little bored with we've built a strong female character who's interesting and nuanced and has this dark, mysterious past. But we can't really think of anything for her to do except pine after huh. one of the dudes in the story. And – that character is so interesting in so many ways. You know, she, she of all of them, she doesn't go into battle with magical superpowers or a giant hammer or a giant, like, suit that she's built herself. She pretty much has her wits and generally a small gun and maybe a motorbike. Like, she's the Batman of these, these films, the yeah. person who's doing it all with just normal human ability and skill. And the fact that we have to default to a romantic relationship for her, I found it a little disappointing. I, I was a little, I mean, I know, again, one of the things Joss Whedon loves most is doomed love stories. But here, it was just like, is, is that really all you can do with this character? And she sort of explains where it comes from. And you can sort of see in a very pop psychology kind of way, here's someone who's fighting her dark side. She's attracted to somebody else who's fighting his dark side. But he has so little personality, mm-hmm. the, the Bruce Banner as as played. So, you know, she's attracted to an idea, and that's even less interesting for me. Yeah, I'd agree. It felt very prescribed to me as well, the natural. And even though, as I said, that first moment between them where she does – do the lullaby, I thought that worked, but I think because it was platonic. And I don't know why we can't have there's nothing wrong with a male-female platonic relationship. Sometimes that can be even more interesting. I would argue that the relationship here that is interesting is Hawkeye mm-hmm. and Black Widow, because you realize after you find out that he has kids with Linda Cardellini, who's very good in a handful of scenes, I mean, manages to pull those off really well. Black Widow is somewhat of the godmother to his kids. She has a relationship and with his wife. With his wife. And I found that more affecting than the Bruce Banner Black Widow relationship. So definitely I would agree with that. You mentioned Kate Erblin's piece on the dissolve comparing Avengers Age of Ultron and Man of Steel. We'll definitely link to that in the show notes. And we'll also link to Adam's Age of Ultron review on Letterboxd. I know that he was able to see it and wrote up some notes there. I think he falls somewhere in between the two of us. If you're more positive, I'm a little more negative. I think Adam falls somewhere in the middle. Avengers The Age of Ultron is out now in wide release. If you see it and agree or disagree with our takes, you can email us. Your feedback at filmspotting.net or as brevity is the soul of criticism, find us on Twitter and share your thoughts 
thoughts with us there. We're at Film Spotting. I'm at Larson on Film. And Tasha, you are conveniently Tasha Robinson. Coming up, supervillains Josh and I lay waste to a perfectly good movie script in Massacre Theater, plus the 2015 summer movie preview. Stay with us. film spotting listeners. Before the time of moving pictures, there was a place to escape the prejudices of the world, a place full of mysticism and adventure. It was called Pleasure Town, a veritable utopia where the only form of entertainment happened in the parlors of cat houses and on bar stools and at poker tables. In Pleasure Town, happiness was the main objective. Only problem was, just whose happiness are we talking about? Once word got out, others who appreciated more sinister forms of happiness arrived. Right. I will freely murder you fine passengers, should any of you choose the hero's path. <laughs> and kindly bear in mind that while I will merely shoot you, my brother likes to have his fun. Oh, I do. Oh, it's a fine day for Spart. I wouldn't say it all went to hell after that, but... Sure got a lot more complicated. WBEZ's modern audio drama Pleasure Town is back for season two. Join the story now at WBEZ.org slash Pleasure Town. I know why you need my help. Oh, yeah? Yeah. You're lonely. You're a lonely man. Sure, kid. Sure, kid. Let's drift. A silent, lonely drifter. You're a lonely, lonely man. Welcome back to Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson with guest host Tasha Robinson from The Dissolve, a clip there from the new film Slow West. That was Film Spotting Madness Champ and Lonely, Lonely Man Michael Fassbender with newcomer Cody Smith-McPhee. We mentioned Slow West a couple weeks back in our preview of the Chicago Critics Film Festival, where it played at the Music Box this past weekend. The film is set in the 19th century American West, and it's about a 16-year-old boy on a quest to find the woman he loves. It opens next weekend here in Chicago, also will be in limited release and via On Demand. And as of now, anyway, it's the movie we do plan to review on next week's show. I myself didn't make it to that Chicago Critics Film Festival screening on Sunday, Tasha. I really wanted to. A wildflower hike 
with my kids one out. The weather, <laughs> if the weather turned, I was going to go to Slow West, but with it being a nice day, I just couldn't couldn't make that choice. So I am going to catch up with it. Have you been able to see it yet? I have. You know, there's so much hiking in that movie. You you could have vicariously experienced oh, a hike instead of experiencing a real life one in actual nature. I could have gotten them both out of the way at once, huh? Well, you shouldn't have taken your kids though, no. because it's it's a very violent movie. A little rough, huh? No, it's. Uh, I I think it's a riot. I mean, it's not overtly a comedy, but it. it it does really play as though Wes Anderson had directed the Coen Brothers' True Grit. It's, oh, my. It's humorous in a very dry Andersonian sort of way. Michael Fassbender is terrific. There are a lot of familiar actors and sort of familiar beats handled in an unfamiliar way. I think you guys are going to have a hoot with this movie. All right. Well, I do hope that is the one we end up reviewing next week then. For now, though, it's time for Massacre Theater. We perform a scene badly, and you get a chance at winning a prize. Last time, we massacred this. You really trust, excuse me, that I do not join you. But I have already died. And I never drink wine. An ancestor? I see a resemblance. The order of the Dracul. Is the dragon. Yes. Ancient society, pledging my forefathers to defend the church against all enemies of Christ. The relationship was not entirely successful. Oh, yes. <laughs> it is no laughing matter. We, Dracul's have a right to be proud. What devil or witch was ever so great as a dealer whose blood flows in these veins? That's Gary Oldman as Count Dracula and Keanu Reeves as Jonathan Harker in 1992's Bram Stoker's Dracula, written by James V. Hart and directed by Francis Ford Coppola. A couple weeks back on episode 535, we did our top five movie houses that was related to that fantastic house in Ex Machina. The scene itself here, of course, took place in Dracula's cozy Transylvanian castle. A couple of listeners had some thoughts on our performances there in Massacre Theater. Jeremy Soror from Japan said, wow, how cool was that? Dracula was Josh's throat ever the same after that performance. I recovered fairly quickly, Jeremy. Thank you for the concern, though. Tom Lehman from Seattle, Washington wrote in, Josh's quote-unquote sound effect gave me a good laugh and gives Gary Oldman's original performance a run for its money. There's two straightforward tie-ins I could see right away. The first being Dracula's Castle as a possible contender for your top five movie houses. The second one as a little teaser for next week's show of the top movies of 1992, even though I doubt this one will make either of your guys' lists. And you were right about that, Tom. On top of that, I found another tie-in that you might not have intended. Keanu Reeves is most well-known as Neo from the Matrix movies, where he has to save a world ruled by machines that are driven by a relentless artificial intelligence. That's not too far off from Alicia Vikander's robot in your featured review of Ex Machina. Curtis V. Schmidt of Phoenixville, Pennsylvania, said, Great performances by both Josh and Adam. I love how Josh always goes for it. He leaps without a safety net like Wile E. Coyote. <laughs> And Adam finally found the role he was born to play. He perfectly nailed Keanu's flat line readings, albeit with his signature touch of femininity. That is true, Curtis, but don't forget about the accent. I was impressed by Adam's accent in that one. And listener Justin McKinnon in Toronto, he thought the same thing. He said, finally, your English accent surpasses that in the actual performance. Well done, old chap. Here's more from Curtis's note. 
I remember seeing this movie in the theater right at that time when I'd grown beyond noticing just the content of a movie to noticing the aesthetic of the filmmakers involved. I revisited it last year, and while I remembered the movie having style, wow, I absolutely love what Coppola is doing in his Dracula. So many movies strive for realism when movies by definition are artificial. I love it when filmmakers embrace the visual poetry and revel in the flourishes. Interesting note, the intercutting between the Harker wedding and Lucy's death scene is interestingly similar to the climax of The Godfather. I never made that connection before this recent viewing. One more note here from Tammy Smith in Lakewood, Colorado. Dracula is a horrible movie. She says that I watched 13 times in the theater because I was that big a fan of Oldman. Can I claim it was my dark goth phase? (laughs) Sure, Tammy, we'll let you use that as your excuse. All right, Tasha, we did have a number of entries for that massacre theater. Why don't you go ahead and pick out the winner from the film spotting hat for us? And the winner is Ross Bratton of New York City. Congratulations, Ross. Email feedback at filmspotting.net to claim your film spotting T-shirt. The other day, when I heard Mr. Fabian tell Miss Channing that her understudy was going to have a baby and they'd have to replace her. And you want to be Margaret's new understudy? I don't let myself think about it. Well, Tasha, when you agreed to co-host and fill in here for Adam this week, I thought it does work out nicely we're doing Massacre Theater. You've done well in performances before, and we thought we better give her a juicy part this time so that she can have a little fun with it. Listeners can have a little fun with it and carry on their tradition here. So I think we found that with this scene might be a little bit obvious. The tie-ins are certainly obvious. They're tied to our top five list, our summer movie preview. There are tie-ins to our main review of Avengers Age of Ultron. So there are a couple clues for you on top of what should be a dead-on Tasha Robinson performance. I'm going to say that. (laughs) Are you feeling confident? I am feeling confident, but you have the first line, so I'm going to have to give you the action. That's right. Go ahead. And action. Weren't you just in the news? Some show in Prague? Prague? Milan, darling, Milan. Supermodels. Ha! Nothing super about them. Spoiled, stupid little stick figures with poofy lips who only think about themselves. I used to design for gods. Hmm, but perhaps you come with a challenge, eh? I have a surprise to get your call. I just need a patch job. Hmm, this is a rayon polyester mix. Outmoded, but very sturdy, and you've torn right through it. What have you been doing, Hayden? Moonlighting? Must have happened a long time ago. I see. This is a horrible suit, darling. You can't be seen in this. I won't allow it. Fifteen years ago, maybe. But now, pfft. What do you mean? I, you designed it. I never look back, darling. It, it, it distracts from the now. You need a new suit. That much is certain. A new suit? Where the heck am I going to get a new suit? <laughs> you can't. It's impossible. I'm t- far too busy. So ask me now before I once again become sane. And <laughs> seen. <laughs> We better stop it there before you do become sane. Nicely done. Oh, no, I'm enjoying this. Now I want to design you a suit. (laughs) I'll take it. I'll take it. If you know what scene we just massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Your deadline is Monday, May 18. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced on the show in a couple of weeks. To get official Massacre Theater rules, visit filmspotting.net. Thank you, darling. (laughs) You're welcome, darling. All right, come on in. Do this face-off style. Okay, let's take a look. See what your final category is. Okay, y'all. Take a second to think about it. Time's up. Go. This is how we do it. Kind of boss, and it's all because. 
It really wouldn't be a 2015 summer movie preview without some 90s hip-hop jams, courtesy of the Pitch Perfect 2 cast there. It is top five time, Tasha, and I can't speak for you, but Pitch Perfect 2 is not making my most anticipated movies of the summer list. It would, however, be making Adam's top five, and I know this because it was his number three number three most anticipated movie of 2015. That's the entire year when we shared our lists back in January. Are you looking forward to it that much? I'm not looking forward to it that much. I'm looking forward to it a little. Okay. If we were doing top five most anticipated musical scenes of the summer, I'd be all over it. Okay. So it sounds like you're a reasonable fan. All that being said, I'm in no position to make fun of Adam because my number three most anticipated movie of 2015 Well, some might say that it doesn't actually exist, at least not yet. I picked Sofia Coppola's adaptation of The Little Mermaid, still waiting for a page to appear on IMDb for that. But I had heard it's coming out this year, so I'm I'm being hopeful there. Of the movies that we do know are coming out, and certainly the ones coming out between now, beginning of May, and usually we think of August as the last month for lists like these, which ones are your most anticipated, Tasha. What do you have at your number five? My number five is a documentary that I saw at Tribeca called The Wolf Pack. It's a debut documentary by a young documentarian uh, called Crystal Moselle, who just happened to stumble across this amazing story. Uh, There was a family of six more or less adolescent boys um, and their mother and father and a younger sister all living in a New York apartment together. The father was a very controlling individual who didn't let the boys out and they more or less grew up in like a flowers in the attic kind of isolationist situation and they entertained themselves by watching movies and recreating them. Moselle shows all of this this footage of they, – they shot themselves on video recreating some of these movies obsessively over and over and over. So you get to see their version of Pulp Fiction, their version of Reservoir Dogs, their version of The Dark Knight. But she also captures them in a moment of transition as they're kind of creating their own lives for the first time instead of creating these artificial lives. And I don't want to spoil anything about where the story goes because unpacking it in the moment, experiencing this kind of awakening of these very specific, very, I'll say it, strange and unique and intellectualized homeschooled individuals, it's really an amazing experience. It's one of the best times I've had at a documentary in a long time. After I saw The Dark Knight, that made me believe that something was possible to happen. Not because it was Batman. It's because it felt like another world. I did everything I could to make that world come true. To escape my world. Wow, made that big of an impression on you. See, I saw this at Sundance, and I do want to revisit it. I'm glad that it's getting a wide release and people will have a chance this summer because my initial reaction was similar to yours in that how did she find these fascinating people and how did she get this access not only to their apartment but to their material, all that video? And the question I was still struggling with is is the one that I think comes up often with Sundance documentaries is – After the access, what did the filmmaker do with it? That's the part I'm still trying to wrap my mind around. But there are so many interesting things going on in this movie. Definitely one people should have on their radar for this summer. When is that one coming out? Do they have a specific release date? It's coming out June 12th. And 
you know, one of the things that hooked me into it was I also came out of it with a thousand questions. So I went and interviewed her. And we're going to, in fact, answer a lot of the questions you just asked in the interview, which will run more around the film's release. Great. We'll look for that on The Dissolve. My number five is Trainwreck. Now, I'm not all that familiar with Amy Schumer. I haven't seen her Comedy Central show, just bits of it maybe here and there, but I haven't watched a number of the episodes. I am aware of her reputation for smart raunchiness, and it strikes me that maybe she's somewhat of a kindred spirit to someone like Judd Apatow. So it makes sense to me that Apatow is directing Schumer here in Trainwreck. She's playing this partying career woman who's faced with the terrifying prospect of a serious relationship with a decent guy. And the guy is played by Bill Hader. What am I doing? I slept at the doctor's place last night. My boy got intimate. Yes. Sexual intercourse. Oh! You never spend the night. What were you, blackout drunk? No, I had like two drinks. Three, max. Four, now that I'm tallying. Because you're on antibiotics or something? Now, the trailer that I've seen does suggest, at least to me, a fairly simple morality tale. It definitely traces a narrative from who she is and who she becomes and how she gets that way. I certainly hope the movie itself is more than that. And I would think it might be because Schumer here is also a screenwriter. So her voice is going to have a big part of it while Apatow only directs. Now, of course, the obvious difference between these two is that of gender. And given that most of Apatow's films have centered on men and often groups of men, I know he's gone in different directions with family and marriage, too. But primarily, that's been what the focus has been for his films. I'm going to be interested to see how this filmmaking partnership and that dynamic plays out in Trainwreck. That's coming out on July 17. Yeah, especially since it seems like he's he's flipping the script with this one. I don't know if he and Schumer worked together because this is a story that he keeps telling about the the irresponsible, usually the irresponsible man right. meeting the responsible woman. And this time those genders are reversed. I don't know if he, for her there was any inspiration in his other films or this is just a story that she personally wanted to tell. But I'll be very interested in seeing how he navigates some of the things that he's done over and over when he doesn't have his usual dynamic to play with. Yes, for sure. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an open question. And for me, it's always interesting to see an established filmmaker go out on a little bit of a limb like that. What did you have at number four, Tasha? Number four for me is Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon 2, The Green Legend, which is a film that's been circulating in in planning and in discussion and in ideas for, for many, many years. Obviously, the original uh, directed by Ang Lee was, I mean, it was a worldwide hit. It was a huge phenomenon. It was a very surprising success story. This very small, inexpensive film that went on to be a more than $100 million uh, success back when that was really, really big money. The This one isn't uh, an Ang Lee production, but it is directed by Yuan Ping, who was the uh, fairly famous fight coordinator both on Crouching Tiger and on many, many, many martial arts films and then many American films with really distinctive fight sequences like The Matrix. It's based on a later book in the same series that gave birth to Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Um, and Michelle Yao is back for it and we've got a lot of new talent for it. I'm really... I, I don't know what to expect from this film because there isn't a whole lot available, even though it theoretically came out in China in 2014. I haven't been able to find reviews of it or really that much information about what to expect. But essentially with that pedigree, I'm expecting at least the potential for something fascinating. 
in some cases, some of the things that I'm anticipating this year are things that I, I think have real potential to be terrific. This could have the potential to be a train wreck and it would be just as interesting for me. I'm just really looking forward to seeing what could potentially come out of it. One of the things that's already come out of it is it's going to be released simultaneously on VOD and in IMAX theaters, which apparently is a first and is causing a lot of friction with theater owners in general. My instinct is on this one, Go to IMAX. Yeah. <laughs> I can't imagine seeing a Crouching Tiger sequel on your, even if you have fairly big TV at home. I mean, this the first film just screamed the need for a big screen. And I'll also say, as we're talking about sequels like Avengers Age of Ultron and how quickly these Marvel movies come out, this is a world that I've, I've missed. It's been so long that I think back on it with fondness now and am eager to return to it. And maybe there's something to be said about a lengthy amount of time between sequels can build up anticipation in a little bit of a different way. So that's definitely one of my anticipated films as well. At number four, though, I have a film called The Tribe. This is a Ukrainian film, no spoken dialogue, no subtitles, scream summer movie season, right? Obviously, this is what we get so much in these months. But I have been hearing really good things about this since it played at Cannes in 2014. It's about a teen who's trying to fit in at a boarding school for the hearing impaired. So within that milieu, I guess the movie relies largely on nonverbal acting and sign language. Now, among those praising it have been the New York Times' Manola Dargis. Though her praise, it sounds like this. One of her quotes is that it's tough, visually audacious. Another she calls it a slice of art film miserableism. So again, maybe not the usual summer fair, but definitely sounds like a unique piece of work. And I've got room in my summer for some things like this too. So I'm looking forward to The Tribe. The date right now that is set for that release is June 17. All right, we're going to get to our final three picks in our summer movie preview when we come back. Let's just hope that it remains minion free. Stay with us. I'm not from here. You're listening to Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. Tasha Robinson from The Dissolve is in for Adam. The top five this week has us looking ahead to the summer movies that we're most looking forward to. Tasha, let's recap quickly here our number five and number four picks. What would you have at the top of your list there? At number five, I had The Wolf Pack, uh, which is a fascinating documentary about a cloistered group of teenagers growing up in New York. It comes out June 12th. At number four, I had Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon 2, The Green Destiny, which is coming out on August 28th simultaneously, strangely enough, on IMAX and VOD. My number five was Train Wreck, which is an Amy Schumer vehicle directed by Judd Apatow. And at number four, I had The Tri- 
describe a film from the Ukraine. Radio listeners, if you want to hear our takes on those picks, along with a lot more talking in general, you can find the full version of the show at filmspotting.net. You can always subscribe to the podcast in iTunes as well. That brings us to our number three picks for most anticipated summer movies. What'd you have in that slot, Tasha? Well, at number three, I I went with the Marvel Cinematic Universe movie, Ant-Man. This was originally going to be directed by Edgar Wright, and uh, really my most anticipated movie of the summer is Edgar Wright's Ant-Man. But since he left the project, we're not that, getting that film are didn't we? happen. No, we're not going to get that. I am very curious to see. The new director is Peyton Reed, who did Bring It On and Down With Love, both of which were, I think, flawed films, but really fun, energetic ones. And the trailers for this movie have been interesting, have been sort of enthusiasm building in a, a very strange way. Scott, I've been watching you for a while. You're different. And I believe everyone deserves a shot at redemption. Do you? Absolutely. My days of breaking into places and stealing stuff are over. What do you want me to do? I want you to break into a place and steal some stuff. Makes sense. The Marvel Cinematic Universe, some of it is stronger. Some of the installments are stronger than others. Some of them are weirder than others. This looks like it may be more on the weird side than the strong side. But given everything that you said about Age of Ultron and wanting to see something new, maybe this will give you your something new. It's a focus back on an individual character and an individual character with some relatively strange powers. I'm really curious to see what Peyton Reed does with this as an auteur. I'm also really curious to see how Paul Rudd handles being a superhero. Mm-hmm. Paul Rudd has just, it seems like, an, an infinite store of charisma in a very careful, withdrawn sort of way. He's really good at making terrible characters seem kind of approachable and and light and fun. I'm assuming that this is not a terrible character, so I'm assuming he will be able to turn his charisma up to the top notch, and we'll we'll get to see what that looks like. Yeah, maybe this will scratch my itch for something unique in terms of a Marvel movie. I did like in the trailer the gag, speaking of self-critique about all the bombastic action Mm -hmm. in these films, the gag in the trailer where it turns out they're fighting on a little toy train set. (laughs) That just worked beautifully. And, you know, it is unfortunate not only because Edgar Wright is such a fantastic filmmaker, but his sensibility did seem to be a good match from Mm -hmm. what I saw in the trailer. But perhaps this will still work in a slightly different way. At number three, I had a very big action film. That's what it seems to promise, at least, Mad Max Fury Road. I just rewatched the first two films in this franchise over the weekend, and to my surprise, I knew every beat of The Road Warrior. I hadn't watched it in years, but I knew every beat in this second installment. So I knew I had seen it as a kid and liked it, but apparently I must have had it on repeat during those years because it was so familiar to me. So I'll admit there's a good dose of nostalgia involved here in my anticipation for this, but I do also like how Fury Road, judging from the trailer, again, does seem to have done a good job of recreating that nutty post-apocalyptic world that Mel Gibson originally inhabited while also expanding a little bit. So again, it's bringing me back to a world I, I guess I missed more than I knew I missed it. So we'll see how that works. Maybe it's familiar because original director George Miller is back on board here. This time he's working with Charlize Theron and Tom Hardy. That's a promising cast. May 15 is the release date for Mad Max Fury Road. You're bearing the lead here. So your your big rewatch and your big rewatch, you didn't have any interest in going, say, beyond Thunderdome? I think I'm going to have to go beyond Thunderdome, but I'm afraid that's going to kill the buzz. (laughs) 
Are you a big Thunderdome so, fan? So you're a person who does need another hero and needs to know the way home, and that's oh, why see, you want the latest Mad Max. See, you're already killing the buzz, Tasha, just by <laughs> referencing that. Thanks. What did you have at number two? Number two is a, a little bit of a weird one uh, and a little bit of a personal one for me. Um, it's called Selfless. Uh, it's self-slash-less. And it's the latest film from Tarsem Singh, uh, who often just goes by Tarsem. Tarsem Singh's first real movie for me was The Fall in 2006. He had previously done the the weird Jennifer Lopez uh, vehicle, The Cell, which was a very visual movie, but but not much else. And there's been a lot of that in his career. He's kind of been doing more director for hire work than really individual distinctive work. But for me, The Fall still stands out as one of my favorite movies of all time because we really see what he can do in a story that's about storytelling, in a story that's that's personal to him, and in a story that he built bit by bit, essentially from scraps over over years of work. So I kind of go into each new Tarsem movie hoping that we're going to get that kind of, of personal approach, that we're going to get that kind of commitment. And instead, we've seen Immortals and Mirror Mirror, both of which were visually distinctive films, but maybe not distinct in storytelling. Uh, Selfless is just a the, – the plot just interests me. It's one of those transplant movies. You've, you've maybe seen uh, The Eye or Idle Hands or one of many, many other movies throughout the years about someone who gets a graft uh, from someone, an arm or a hand or, or an, an eye or a torso or whatever, and it turns out to be evil. This is about somebody who gets a full body transplant. An older man is transplanted into the body of a younger man. He's promised it's a, a pristine created body, but it turns out to have a past in its own memories. It's a kind of a heady, high concept science fiction thriller. It's going to look magnificent. I'm hoping it's also going to play out in an interesting way. That's something I can't guarantee, but I will continue to follow Tarsum's work very, very closely just to see what somebody this distinctive and with this many ideas does with these strange scenarios he's handed. I loved The Fall. Absolutely loved The Fall. Thank you. And I, so I many rarely, people haven't seen it. I know. I rarely come across someone who has seen or heard of it. And I missed having just seen before Age of Ultron, the selfless trailer. I missed that it was directed by him. So it, it's vaulting up in my expectations, though. You're right. Uh, Singh has been uh, relegated to things like Mirror Mirror, which I just happened to watch a few weeks ago happenstance and the only interesting things going on there were the level of production design and visuals and costuming that were clearly touches of him or at least his filmmaking team. I understand he works with I believe the same costume designer um, and others who bring that sensibility to his productions but if this is able to let that fully flower rather than just be a tiny part of a studio effort that would be great. My number two is The Look of Silence. This is Joshua Oppenheimer's follow-up documentary to The Act of Killing, which was the 2013 film spotting Golden Brick Award winner. It was also my number four film of that year. The Act of Killing was this fascinating focus on the perpetrators of the Indonesian genocide in the 1960s. The Look of Silence, this follow-up, turns to the victims and to its survivors, including, I understand, an optometrist who confronts the men who killed his brother while they're in his office as patients. I described the act of killing in which the killers proudly recreated their crimes for Oppenheimer on camera as hard to fathom and arduous to watch. The Look of Silence promises, I think, to be something similar, but 
also something just as important. So that is coming out in select theaters, I'm sure, and will then possibly expand. But I believe it will first be available on July 17. Yeah, this is where I admit that my criteria for this anticipated list started with you sending me your list because you didn't want crossover. This is true. This movie could have been number one on my list. I I challenged myself to find movies that weren't on your list at all. But uh, The Act of Killing was my number two movie of 2013. It is an experience. I don't often say movies are essential or required viewing. But this uh, this movie really is required viewing for anybody trying to understand another word that I don't say very often, evil. There is there's yeah. actual evil going on in this film and listening to people explain why they murdered people, knowing full well it was wrong, how they justified it to themselves, how they created the situation that that killed so many people. It's a, it's a masterclass in the banality of evil and in how we end up in so many wars and with so many massacres, how people justify the unjustifiable to themselves. And yet it's a strangely entertaining and so very left field movie. I could not be anticipating this other movie more. Yeah. And the thing with The Act of Killing, too, is that it's this formal accomplishment for a documentary in these recreations, the way that is interwoven and the recreations themselves. So even as it's taking on this hugely heavy real world topic, evil, <laughs> you're right. The ending felt like an exorcism to me. That's another way I described it. It's also so formally inventive as well. So hopefully we'll see something like that again in The Look of Silence. That brings us to our most anticipated films of the summer, the number one picks. What'd you have there, Tasha? Well, this is going to uh, possibly throw some people for a loop because it's it's not a film that's been much publicized. But it's not going to surprise anybody who knows me. Uh, Khalil Gibran's The Prophet is the, the title that this movie is going under. It's an adaptation of a 1923 book that is apparently a series of, of prose poems addressing topics like work and love and life and and children. It became very slowly building over time an immense bestseller. It's been translated into 40 languages. It sold over 9 million copies in the U.S. alone. And one of the uh, Lion King animators has taken it on as an animated feature project. And to do it, he brought in some of my favorite animators in the world to address individual segments as sort of standalone like microcosms. So Bill Plimpton, uh, the indie director of The Tune and Mutant Aliens and 25 Ways to Quit Smoking, he's here for a segment. Nina Paley, who directed the absolutely amazing indie film Sita Sings the Blues, is in for a segment. Johan Safar, the French comic artist and uh, director of The Rabbi's Cat, is in for a segment. Most exciting for me, uh, Irish animator Tom Moore, who directed The Secret of Kells and Song of the Sea, which was by far my favorite animated movie of last year, uh, has directed a segment. If you watch the trailer for this film, it looks like both a sort of rigorous biographical story about a man exploring life and this amazing lyrical exploration of of life and love in a variety of styles of animation created by some really distinctive artists with really idiosyncratic styles who've been just given the freedom to play visually. It looks amazing. And the advance word about it has been just absolutely rapturous. It sounds like it's going to be a very, very small film, but an absolute must-see for animation fans uh, when it comes out August 7th. 
completely off my radar, but sounds great. Those are, you're right, those are some major names working in animation today. My number one is somewhat tied to animation, though it's not an animated film, but the man behind it has some experience in that. It's Tomorrowland. And I have to say, if there's a name I trust right now to do something interesting with a summer release tentpole date, it's Brad Bird. I mean, the guy behind The Incredibles, The Iron Giant, Ratatouille, Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol as well. He's going to stay in that live action territory here with Tomorrowland, which is Gasp, also based on an original concept or script, at least. I know it references the Disney theme park, but the movie itself is written by Bird, Jeff Jensen, and Damon Lindelof. The story involves a teen science geek played by Britt Robertson, who discovers an alternate time and place and explores it with the help of a reclusive inventor. The inventor is played by George Clooney. What you saw was a place where the best and the brightest people in the world came together to actually change it. We've been looking for someone like you for a very long time. Why? Did something happen over there? Something bad? They followed you here? Who? Come on! The trailer for this is essentially an extended scene, at least the one I saw, of these two escaping from Clooney's booby-trapped house. And it has this gee whiz quality that was refreshing. There are shades of the Rocketeer here as well in some of the imagery I saw. Also rated PG, so it's going to take that approach to the story and action. And again, what I want from my summer blockbusters, something that I felt Avengers Age of Ultron didn't give me enough of is just inventiveness, you know? something new. And that Tomorrowland trailer, I've got to say, it had inventiveness coming out of its eyeballs in just those few minutes. So we'll see if it can sustain that for a whole feature, how Bird does in this second foray into live action. But for right now, my hopes are pretty high. That is coming out on May 22. All right. So those were our favorites, Tasha. But as you mentioned in comparing our lists and not wanting overlap, there were a lot of titles at play here because it does look to be a promising season coming ahead. Did you have any honorable mentions you wanted to throw out there before we wrap up? There are a few big, shiny summer movies that I am looking forward to. I'm curious what Jurassic World does with the the Jurassic Park business. Magic Mike XXL, I I think that they're going to try to do something bigger and shinier with this one, and I'm more than a little excited for it. Inside Out, the new Pixar movie, not as excited with the concept, but it's a Pixar movie directed by Pete Docter. You can't shoot that down without uh, without at least a little hope. The new Mission Impossible movie looks interesting. Much as it might not seem this way from my list, I am excited for a bunch of the big boom movies this summer. Well, Pixar's Inside Out, that I had as my number four most anticipated of the year, actually. So I set it aside. It's my presumptive number one on this list, essentially. I guess the concept does intrigue me as well. Aloha will be out this summer. This is Cameron Crowe trying to recapture that magic. He's got some help here, Bradley Cooper and Emma Stone. Dope is a Sundance comedy I missed about a geeky kid growing up in a tough L.A. neighborhood. It has Grand Budapest Hotel's Tony Revolori in a supporting part, so I'm partly just curious to see what he does in another film. Manglehorn brings us 
finally. We've all been waiting for this. Al Pacino and David Gordon Green together. Be interesting to see what they do. Masterminds is Jared Hess directing Zach Galifianakis and Kristen Wiig in a heist comedy. So those are our top five most anticipated movies of the summer. Please send your picks or any other comments about the show to feedback at filmspotting.net. You can also leave us a voicemail, 312-264-0744, or find Filmspotting on Twitter at Filmspotting. That's Adam. I'm at Larson on Film. And of course, we're at facebook.com slash filmspotting. Over at filmspotting.net, you can find 10 years of show archives, including a review of the first Avengers film and countless other Marvel superhero movies. You can also vote in the current Filmspotting poll. We're asking you about your interest in the upcoming Mad Max Fury Road film. That's all at filmspotting.net. One wide release we want to note Opening this weekend, it's Hot Pursuit. It's comedy starring Reese Witherspoon. As an uptight cop, Sofia Vergara is the drug boss's widow that Witherspoon has to protect. I'm sure hilarity does ensue there. Limited release is Maggie. This has Arnold Schwarzenegger in a drama about a dad caring for his daughter as she slowly turns into a cannibalistic zombie. The daughter's played by Abigail Breslin. It's also going to be available via VOD. Over at the Music Box, they have About Ellie. This is from the director of A Separation, Iran's Oscar Farhadi. It's actually a 2009 film, but it's getting its first stateside release. And at the Music Box, Welcome to Me, a Kristen Wiig dramedy about a mentally ill woman who wins the lottery, quits her meds, and starts her own talk show. All right, for next week here in Film Spotting, I believe we are going to do the Michael Fassbender Western Slow West as our main review. That's the current plan. And we're thinking about a top five, not exactly related, but should be fun, movie posters. So if there are posters that come to your mind immediately when I said that, some of the greatest movie posters, the ones that you remember, even if they're from very, very old films, give us your suggestions because this is one I'm excited to do, but I also feel a little bit out of my league in that I'm not an expert in this sort of thing. Uh, Similar to when we did movie composers, just not something I've studied intensely. Haven't studied movie posters. A couple come to mind when I think about them, Um, but I'd love to hear from folks and so would Adam to help get these lists generated. Any come to mind immediately for you, Tasha, when it comes to movie posters? Uh, The 1979, I think, uh, horror movie, The Prophecy. That is the film about the the mutant bear, I believe. I have never seen the movie, but the poster will haunt me until my dying day. It's just, it's a picture of this, this horrible thing growing in an egg and the notation that science doesn't know anything about it except that it's alive and it's female. So just the implication, there's this horrible monster coming, and there's probably going to be more of them after that. It's a, it's a very simple, much like the Alien poster, which had a similar impact on me, but it's, it's really horrifying. All right. Now I only need four more. Thanks a lot. <laughs> Uh, Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Thanks to associate producer Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at Chicago Public Media. More information available at chicagopublicmedia.org. And our music this week is by Calexico. It comes from the new album Edge of the Sun. Calexico is playing two nights here in Chicago at the end of May. That'll be at Lincoln Hall. It's May 30 and 31st. Then on to Toronto, Montreal, Boston, and New York before heading to Europe for a couple of weeks. More information can be found at casadecalexico.com. Tasha, thanks, as always, for joining me here. Bunch of fun. Anything listeners can look forward to? You had mentioned the piece comparing Age of Ultron and Man of Steel at the Dissolve. Anything else going on over there? I know you're in the midst of your month-by-month 
summer preview right now when this podcast is out there and we're on the air? Will that all be out? Yep. All four parts, all four months. We did a mathematically uh, precise survey of all of the, the staffers and contributors figuring out exactly what their anticipation scores were for each of the big summer movies, averaged them out and found out there are a lot of movies that we're not excited about. <laughs> and a lot of the movies that we are excited about, you've heard about here. But there's a lot more detail about why to be excited about some of these movies and, and why not and what to hope for throughout the summer months. Yeah, it's very precise. I saw that. It was, it was quite impressive. <laughs> For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Tasha Robinson. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.